I should say, if you've been a Christian for a while, there's a fair chance that I'm not going to tell you anything new today, so um, no, don't switch off. But the, uh, the, the central idea of this psalm is the thing that we've been thinking about through this morning, and it, it's something which we should all know, but we tend to forget. So hopefully, rather than coming away with a new truth, you're, you'll come away encouraged and remembering or challenged and wanting remember. Um, Let me kick off then simply by asking the big question of this psalm. How do you measure your value? What is it that matters to you? What are the things that at least to some extent you depend on? The things which make you confident or comfortable or feel rich? If you are a Christian then it's a sort of tricky question. Uh, you, you get the Sunday school syndrome kicking in. We know we should say, God, Jesus, the Bible. Uh, but in truth, for most of us, there's just a variety of other things which crowd in around the edges. And when it comes to day-to-day life, outside of the confines of church or the, the home group Bible study, there's a thousand other things which vie for first place on our internal wish list. So what do you value? What would enrich your life beyond your wildest dreams if you had more of it? Is it something trivial like uh, a smartphone? I think many of us have probably succumbed to that temptation. Uh, Is it fashionable clothes? (laughs) Is it something more substantial? Is it um, a higher salary? A better car? A nice house? Or more respectable, good family time? Nice time spent with your kids? or your grandchildren? What would bring you more satisfaction than you currently have? What are the things which, at least to some extent, you would depend on? And what's the nature of your relationship to them? I think that's one of the big questions which this psalm should prompt us to ask. And just by way of context, obviously it's the last psalm in our series, and it's the last of this little set of psalms as well, from the sons of Korah. We don't honestly know who they were uh, or when they were writing these psalms. We don't really know the purpose of them either, aside from Psalm 45, which is clearly a wedding song. One suggestion I quite like, it seems to fit moderately well, is that they're a set of pilgrimage psalms to be sung or used on a journey towards Jerusalem. And they certainly range through a spectrum of the believer's experience. So we started off a few weeks ago. Uh, Daniel led us through Psalm 42, 43 and the Israelites' individual experience of distance from God, longing for him, feeling wounded and hurt and in turmoil because of his absence, and yet looking forward through the bleakness with a certainty that relationship will be restored. And there's a sense of yearning to reach that destination. We skipped Psalm 44, but it it picks up on the corporate aspects of that feeling as the nation Israel longs for their God. And then the Psalms follow Israel closer to home. So 45 is the wedding ceremony, it's the transition. As the Lord takes his throne and elevates his bride to a lasting and blessed union, bringing them into the city. And 46, 47, 48, the Israelites are appreciating this kingdom that's been created for them. They're saying, look how fantastic it is to have God as our fortress and our ruler and our guide. See what it means to dwell here in Jerusalem 
in God's kingdom, aren't we fortunate? Aren't we blessed? The things we've been thinking about today. And they end at Psalm 48, last verse. is lovely. God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. They have found and they know their security in him and that it will last. And so, finally here in Psalm 49, perhaps we're at the end of a pilgrimage. The psalmist has arrived in Jerusalem. He's got his security and his sanctuary in God and he knows it. And it's from that position of privilege this unique vantage point that he gets to look outwards from the very threshold of God's temple into the world and address it. Now I don't know if you picked up on it but when I, when I was studying this and reading this I felt there was a sense of heartbreak to this. Desperate reaching out because he knows his security full well. Look at verse 15. God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. But everyone else is getting it so badly wrong. And he sees their path leading them further and further away from what he's got. And so this gives us some quite an unusual feel. It's got to be one of the most outward-looking songs. It's not a song of praise to God. It's not an appeal for his help. It's not even really an exhortation for others to worship him. It's more like a sermon. It's something from Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, a message that he's longing to get across. Hear this, all you peoples, he says. Listen, all who live in the world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. This is for you. He says he's got words of wisdom for them, a meditation. In case they don't like that, he can dress it up as a proverb or a riddle. He'll even use his harp and set it to music. Anything that will get his message across. And verses 5 to 12 outline the problem that he sees. And then in verses 13 to 20, he compares other people's lot to his own. So first, verse 5, we, we see the riddle, the confusion. Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me. Why should I? I suppose it's not clear here if he's addressing confusion in his own heart or in other people. Um, I suspect it's a bit of both. Certainly the, the world around him would consider that he has a great deal to fear. Those who trust in their wealth, those who have great riches, they're in a position to do him great harm if they so choose. There will certainly be people with political clout and extensive resources, enemies that you wouldn't take lightly. More significantly, there's probably the expectation that he should fear to miss out on what they have. After all, they are wealthy. They are prosperous. They're successful. They've got much to boast about. Whereas who knows, perhaps he is a, a humble man with relatively little to his name. That kind of comparative thinking certainly affects us, doesn't it? Who can say that they're not swayed by the occasional advertising campaign which shows endless happiness and riches if you just get such and such? I've got more than one gadget in my house and actually in my pocket, as you've seen, which testifies against me on that. But we look at other people 
as well. I mean, does anyone else here ever find themselves comparing their lives to others and sort of totting up the blessings and thinking, where's mine? Come on, God. Maybe it's particularly galling for us as Christians when we look out at non-believers and there are people who don't seem to accept God or who even deliberately reject and oppose him. And yet we see that he has mercifully granted them blessings which we would long for. The happy marriage, the uh, successful children, the, the prosperity, the wealth, the health. What's going on, God? So I, I think he's certainly partly speaking to comfort downtrodden believers. Why should I fear? Why should I be taken in by this deception? Consider the big picture. Keep your eye on what matters. But I think as well he's speaking further outwards to those who are completely taken in by their own deception. The guys who think that they've got it made or that they would have it made if they could only get a little bit more. And he's saying, don't you see how little this leads to? Verse 7. With all your wealth, he asked, who among you can buy back the life of even your dearest friend? Can you meet that cost? What will you offer the universe or God to stop a body from seeing decline and decay? What have you got? Uh, I love science. Medical science has undoubtedly done amazing and fantastic things. And it's contributed to lifting the lives of hundreds of millions of people from a pretty wretched state to a reasonable one or beyond. But the thing is, as we've managed to push back more and more of the causes of early death, we've seen a corresponding rise in cancers and degenerative disorders of age. So that the naive science fiction hopes of eternal life by te technology, they're, they're false. They're simply vanquished. Some scientists make perplexed comments that death almost seems to be hardwired into our biology. Others point out that actually from an evolutionary sense, that makes sense. It's necessary. It's part of our, our nature. So even with the best medical care, even for the world's super rich, who's going to hold death at bay? Man, despite his riches, says the psalmist, does not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. That word endure, it implies having an abode, a home, somewhere to rest and lay one's head for the night. And man, despite his riches, cannot achieve that longed-for permanency. We die. I think that's the bitter pill in verse 10 and 11. Wise or foolish, it's very democratic, it's a level playing. Wise or foolish, believer or non-believer, whatever we do, we're going to leave our wealth to others. It will not help us or change our fate. And as a result, verse 11, all their much vaunted achievements, lands they name us themselves, the things that we find ourselves envious of, or even boasting in for ourselves and depending on, all well, they come down to are tombs. So that 
whatever great work I could do, or success, or acts of philanthropy, whatever I might hope to define myself by, I can't pretend that when I'm gone, it will be anything more than a mausoleum, which imperfectly houses a memory of me for a short time. That's not a concept I feel moved to put my trust in. And the psalmist here, he, he's looking out from the temple courtyards, and he's seeing a world whose trusts and, in, and their hopes are inevitably futile. Man, despite his riches, does not endure. I should probably stop for a moment and apologise. I realise I'm a young man speaking about the certainty of death. What, what do I know? Not, not so much. I'm aware as well that to a visitor, or to someone who doesn't consider themselves a believer, the claims of this psalm can seem unpleasantly arrogant. A, a religion's pious and self-righteous attempt to console its followers by condemning those people who have had the gall to not reject the good things in life. And if that rings a bell, then just look back at the tone of verses 1 to 4, or of 16 to 19. See the sense of tragedy to it, and his desperation to reach out. I think this is a message that's not born of self-satisfaction, but of concern and love. If you're not sure, then study the Christians around you. Um, they are an imperfect bunch of sinners. No one can deny that. Look at them. Uh, but that's just like anyone else. The, the popular characterisation of these people around you is as fools, or as arrogant, or naive. But study them. And I believe that it won't take you too long to see hints that they've got a hope which weirdly does not depend on the wealth of this world. And they've got a concern for other people which grows out of that. Or perhaps like many of my friends or my family or my colleagues, you'd say, well, yeah, of course this is right, isn't it? It's trivial and obvious, almost insultingly so. We will one day pass on. In a few hundred years, no one will know my name. But that's the way it's always been. Grow up. Get on with living. Enjoy the now. I think that's what the next section of the psalm is there for. The author wants to claim, at least, that there's a better alternative. I'd suggest to you that if there's even the slightest chance that he's right, it's got to be worth some serious consideration. Ask a Christian friend about the evidence of their position. Read about it. Go on a, a Christianity Explored course or something similar. Just don't rest on your assumptions because the gain and loss which he suggests are immense. Look at verse 13. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers who approve their sayings. Like sheep they are destined for the grave and death will feed on them. How sinister is that? It's horrible. Other translations go for death will be their shepherd. Who will benefit from them? Who will reap the rewards of their lives? Who will sell their wool and profit from their flesh? Only their ultimate enemy, death. While well, they will decay in the grave, 
far from the mansions they'd imagine them for themselves. And surely he had Psalm 23 in mind. We, we sang it earlier. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Look at the comparison he wants to draw. He knows that we're all in the same boat. That's clear in verses 5 to 12. Wise and foolish both perish. Mankind generally, Christians included, face death. There is no magic pill to avoid that. No one can redeem another or give God a ransom to turn things around. But look at verse 15. God will redeem me from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. It's despite death that this guy has a constant and certain hope in God. That is what he'll rely on. That is where he'll find his value. And what he saw dimly in the character of his God, revealed through his people's history over a long period of time, what he saw dimly was clarified hundreds of years later when Jesus, who calls himself the Good Shepherd, unlike death, when Jesus died on the cross as God's ransom to redeem and buy back from our inherent death in rejection of him anyone who's prepared to turn from false wealth which decays and declines and depend on Christ instead. I think verse 15 is the whole point of this psalm. I think it's not arrogant. It's not condemning or mocking. It's just an open invitation. A man who has riches without this understanding, a human who chooses to derive their, their value or security from their wealth or success or reputation or anything except this redeeming God, well, they're missing one heck of a trick. And they're no better off than an animal that dies. So where do I derive my value? What confidence do you have? What's it based on? If you're a Christian brother or sister here today, then it is on God. It's Jesus who has redeemed us and will surely gather us in. That's quite good, isn't it? That's our source of confidence and meaning. So, how do we apply this? What's it mean for us today? The, the obvious application is the one that's given to us in verse 16. Don't be overawed. Don't be overawed at other people's prosperity. It's so easy to be taken in by the section, isn't it? And to think, I'm missing out on something important. I need what they have. Or I should be scared of them. To want something that other people have and then feel aggrieved that we don't seem to get it. But in honesty, I know my judgement is pretty rubbish. My track record for choosing things which will bring me long-term satisfaction is abysmal. Uh, the Matthew Henry com commentary on this psalm gives this observation. God often gives abundance of the good things of this world to bad men who live in contempt of him and rebellion against him, by which it appears that they are not the best things in themselves. For then God will give most of them to his best friends, and that they are not the best things for us. For then those would not have so much of them, who, being marked for ruin, are to be ripened for it by their prosperity. Essentially, you think you're missing out on something good, but think it through. If the good and loving God 
has preferred for you not to have it, then he's probably got better plans. It's not that there's anything wrong, of course, with prosperity and wealth. A believer can have those things and be made better or more able to serve through them. But again, as Matthew Henry says, it's not men's riches that denominate them worldly, but they're setting their hearts upon them as the best things. It's trusting and depending on the wrong thing. And that 